The 2016 Summer Olympics just ended, as all of you already know, held in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and I must confess, I was captivated, and for one reason and one reason alone, Michael Phelps. That did it for me. That man single-handedly fixed my attention. The greatest Olympian, the greatest swimmer of all time, 23 gold medals, 28 medals total, just unparalleled, unbelievable. So we would rush home after vacation Bible school, and I would turn on the TV, and we would see, and there, there when I would hear the announcer begin, swimmers, take your marks, and all eight swimmers would be up there on the starting blocks, and they, as the horn sounded, they would dive into the pool, and I would find myself tensing up more and more and more as the race went on and on, and that 50 meters, I was just losing it. I was jumping up and down. I was acting crazy in my living room because I wanted to see every ounce of energy in Michael Phelps contending one stroke after the next for a gold medal. A perfect picture of what this idea of contending is. If there was one thing that mattered to every Olympic athlete the last few weeks, it was the idea of contending for something. A gold medal. The book of Jude is all about contending. It's all about it. Jude calls believers to contend not for a gold medal, though, but for the faith the Christian faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, let me, let me share with you the spectrum of emotion that I traveled over the past couple weeks. I went from thinking, oh, the book of Jude, I love this book, we named our child this, this is going to be great, I love the beginning, I love the end, I should probably get a little bit more familiar with everything else the book says. So we started here, and then, so I started digging in a little bit more, and I thought, oh, Oh dear, that's sort of interesting. And then the fear continued to grow and I thought, I don't even know what that means. And, and so I ran the gamut of thinking, what is, this is not familiar to me at all. I'm scared. And I, I'm thankful that by God's grace, I feel like I've kind of swung back and I'm, I'm genuinely excited to jump into this book with you over the next two weeks. So to give you an overview of where we're heading over the next couple weeks, We'll consider together the first 16 verses together today, and next week we'll look at the conclusion, the last nine verses, uh, verses 17 through 25. So to help you, it may, it may be uh, of assistance for you to see an outline of the book of Jude. We might, we might say the greeting is in verses 1 and 2, the call to contend for the faith is his grand premise right at the beginning in verses 3 and 4. We see the large portion of the book, the body of the book, is this, this extended treatment and illustrations of this idea that we must grasp the certainty and the warning of divine punishment against those who are creeping into the covenant community of faith. And then lastly, the call to persevere. And then probably what's most familiar to us is Jude's benediction in verses 24 and 25. The main idea of Jude is that as those who God calls, who he keeps, and who he will one day present blameless before his presence with exceeding joy, those people are called to, in the here and now, contend for the faith that has been delivered to them. 
particularly against a certain group of people, insiders, those that have come from within, defectors of the community of faith. So introductory comments to the book, we might say that it, as, as you've noticed reading this this morning, the book of Jude is relatively small. It's not very long. Uh, it's only one chapter. And, and due to its brevity and due to its location at the end of the Bible, it can easily be missed. It's caused many scholars to say it's the most neglected book in the New Testament. Another reason this book might be neglected is due to the reasons that I mentioned earlier that I experienced over the last few weeks. It can be scary at parts. We don't know what to do with it. And we either put it in perhaps a couple boxes. We put it in the doom and gloom box where we put a lot of the Old Testament, where we we just kind of say, I've heard these general themes of judgment before, and that's in my doom and gloom Bible box. Or we just say, "This, this is just too tricky to understand. I don't have the time or the discipline to devote to just figuring out what's going on here. So I'll just put it in that box. And we can find ourselves just reading over and thinking, I'm not getting this. And so I'll just, you know, hope to read somewhere else in my devotions or breeze over it. And this accounts for why the book is is not uh, considered very often. But my prayer this morning is that with the Lord's help, the book of Jude will become a significant book in your Bible that you turn to for reminders of God's faithfulness and his promise to keep his children to the end that he would hold us fast. And it wouldn't only be a a song that holds you in those times, but the book of Jude would be a go-to place to remind you of this precious truth. So without further ado, let's jump into verses 1 and 2. Jude begins his letter, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So there are five occurrences in the New Testament of people who bear that name of Jude. And it helps limit our search, knowing that this is the brother of James. So in Matthew 13, we read of Jesus astounding those in his hometown synagogue with his wisdom. And before taking up offense with Jesus, these hometown residents say, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So Jude is simply our English rendering of Judas. And hence, we believe our author is one of Jesus' earthly brothers. So this comes to two books in our New Testament, James and Jude, both earthly brothers of Christ who wrote books in the New Testament. And Jude begins his letter in identical fashion as his brother, as the book of James. Jude describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, two interesting things we might note right off the bat here. First of all, in the text that Dr. Pratt preached just a few weeks ago from John chapter 7, we read in verse 5 that it clearly mentions that even Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. So we know that up to the point of the pre-crucifixion ministry of Jesus, his own brothers were unbelievers. They did not believe. Jude and James, from what we understand, did not trust in the saving gospel. They were not disciples. But, thankfully, Acts chapter 1 tells us, as it lists all the disciples, it says that 
uh, all of his disciples were gathered, devoting themselves to prayer with Jesus' mother and his brothers. So here we have indication that somewhere after seeing the, the graphic display of God's wrath outpoured, Christ's love for sinners, his fulfillment of the scriptures, they believed. And now they find themselves as servants of the Lord. Second interesting thing is this. If you and I were writing a letter about the one and only longed-for Messiah, and it just so happened that we grew up with him, sharing more meals than we can remember, looking God in the eyes on a daily basis, wouldn't you feel the temptation just within you to just let people know that you're an expert on all things Messiah? You are an authority on all things Jesus you would kind of be tempted to, to kind of step forward and say, well, listen, you know, I'm, I'm kind of uniquely qualified to speak here. We don't see even an ounce of that kind of spirit in Jude. All we see is humility right off the bat. And yet, it is not this title, a servant of the Lord, that is empty of good company. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Peter, Paul and many others delighted in this title of being a servant of the Lord or servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the greeting continues in verse one. Follow along there to those who are called beloved in God, the father and kept for Jesus Christ. So although this letter lacks any reference to a specific church, Jude describes his spiritual family as called beloved and kept by God through Christ. So as Jude is, is, is warming up in the bullpen, getting ready to storm out and take the mound and deliver one scathing condemnation after another against these intruders into the church in verses 5 through 16, as he's preparing for this, he wants his true spiritual family to rest to rest in God's calling them to salvation, their beloved status before God the Father, and Jesus' keeping power, his ability to keep them. I love that word, and Jude loves it as well. He'll use it repeatedly. Keeping power of them during this battle-scarred life of faith. He wants them to know this. So verse 2 reads, May mercy, peace, and love. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Jude favors triads or, or saying things in threes, or these triplets. They, you'll see them a lot. Keep your antenna up and you'll see him do this all over the place. So here, having said uh, already that mercy, peace, and love, we move into the majority of the text here. And now why would the church need these spiritual qualities? Well, God's mercy is what these saints need if they're to contend effectively against these false teachers. Peace is the very thing the false teachers are destroying because they're causing division within the church. And love, love is what is needed towards those who are perverting the grace of God into sensuality. So having greeted his brethren with these theological blessings, Jude immediately now launches in to the main point of his book. So we see we must contend for the faith in verses 3 and 4. Jude writes in verse 3, Beloved, 
using that word again, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The book of Jude that we've read this morning that you have before you is not the letter Jude wanted to write. He did not want to write this letter. He's telling us that. He wanted to write a positive letter reveling in the glories of the gospel and the glories of their common salvation in Jesus. He wanted to communicate a warm-spirited, uplifting, encouraging message. But instead, led by the Spirit of God, he appeals to them to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude concludes that being a servant of Christ means he's not in control over what message he gets to bring. He is simply a servant, relaying faithfully God's message through him. So he switches gears and begins to convey the sobriety now of of his message. And herein we find the singular imperative that drives this book forward. All else that we'll read relates back to this one call here, contend 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 but what exactly does this word mean well the underlying root greek word here carries the idea of a struggle a struggle or a fight such as what would be true in military engagement or or athletic contest actually very similar to that concept of swimming that we alluded to earlier Paul uses the same root word in 1 Timothy 6 when he encourages Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. The author of Hebrews uses the same word multiple times in chapter 12 as Christians are told to run with endurance the race that is set before them and to consider him, Jesus, who endured such hostility against himself so that they do not become weary in their struggle against sin. So contending means striving with intensity, not just a lackluster sort of, I'll I'll show up and do my thing that I'm supposed to, but a true striving with intensity after a goal. So what's the goal? The goal is the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Mark Dever writes, Jude does not tell them to contend for overly short togas or overly long hair. He does not tell them to contend over meanings of obscure words or what color to paint the catacombs. No, Jude tells them to contend for the faith that is the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, his atoning death and his call to discipleship. He tells them to contend for the faith once for all entrusted to Christians. Now, before we press on, we have to ask a question. Are you this morning contending for such a cause? Now, perhaps you'd certainly admit that you're a contender of some things, but certainly not the Christian gospel. Contending for the cause of a crucified Jewish man who made claims to be God in human flesh some 2,000 years ago and died on a Roman cross in the Middle East? No, that's not what I strive intensely after. That's not what I struggle to center my life around. Oh, no, that's not me. Well, if that's you, 
keep listening. Please, keep listening. Because what you'll hear in a few moments is the bleak description of God's plans for those sorts of people who contend for lesser things, such as self-centeredness, selfish pleasure, and wholehearted resistance to this notion that Jesus Christ ought to be Lord over every facet of your life. God has plans for people like that, and it's not good. Listen with an inquisitive ear, knowing this is not fanciful, allegorical, religious banter this morning. This isn't a a fairy tale that we like to get all excited about. This is divine speech from God to you, and he wants you to hear. So Christians, like a good motivator, Coach Jude, so to speak, gives us a pat on the back and says, let's go. Let's go. I'm appealing to you to contend, church. You receive the baton, and it's time to run. And in his pregame speech, he outlines what exactly is at stake and why this running is so significant. Verse 4 reads, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These people are intruders. They are interlopers. They're moles. They're tares among the wheat. What troubles Jude is these camouflaged Christians who did whatever was necessary to make it inside the camp, only to subvert And as he says, pervert the grace of God into something it was never intended to be, sensuality. The character of these deceitful Christian lookalikes is described in the following four descriptions. We see here in verse 4, their judgment was predicted long ago. They are ungodly. They pervert God's grace into freedom to sin liberally. And they deny our Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Proverbs 16 is striking when it states, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. And Jude underscores the the reality that these individuals have been marked out by God for such judgment. Their ungodly hearts distort and pervert God's grace so that their conclusions that they come to are, we ought to just sin, because grace will abound, of course. And the fast-moving stream of their licentiousness eventually carries them off the waterfall of outright denial that Jesus Christ is Master and Lord. Make no mistake, these people are not Christians. They are not, by any stretch of the imagination. Though they outwardly may look the part at times, they are not contenders for the faith. Jude simply agrees with his brother Jesus that though some may plead, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do all sorts of wonderful things in your name? Only to receive from Christ a declaration that they were never known by him. Now, 
in verses 5 through 16, Jude begins now to vividly illustrate all that he declares in verse 4 about these godly intruders who have crept into the church. And it is bleak. So in so doing, Jude effectively warns us of our need to grasp the warning and the certainty of divine judgment. And be forewarned. Jude is interacting freely and comfortably with stories, some even extra-biblical, not in the Bible, that would have been a normal part of the Jewish religious mindset of the day. These stories, most of them, which are taken from the Old Testament, although not entirely, are given for illustrative purposes, to illustrate his greater point and to enhance Jude's overarching point in this section, namely that God's judgment is certain. It's certain. That is in that link everything we see to that basic idea. Judgment is certain, as we see description after description of these sorts of people. So we must grasp the certainty of divine judgment. In verses 5 through 7, we read, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who do not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains and gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Once again, Jude offers here another another triad or a triplet here in verses five through seven. We see Israel's unbelief after being saved from Egyptian slavery, the angels leaving their proper position of authority, and Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities being judged for their flagrant immorality. Now you might be intrigued. You're reading here by Jews reference to Jesus delivering Israel out of Egypt. It's a little unique, isn't it? But Jude's intention here is not to make some huge point about finding Christ in all the scriptures as good of a thing as that can be. But as D.A. Carson notes, the appeal to the Exodus is here primarily as a cautionary moral lesson. The people experienced great deliverance given by God, but because they did not persevere in faith, they fell in the wilderness and never entered the promised land. Having said that, Jude seems to have no qualms about offering this unqualified statement that Jesus delivered Israel out of slavery. A detailed discussion here is not possible, but just as the Apostle Paul understood Christ to be present with Israel in the wilderness in 1 Corinthians 10. And John interprets Isaiah's heavenly vision in Isaiah 6 as beholding the glory of Christ in John chapter 12. And as the Apostle Paul restates Isaiah's words that every knee will bow and declare allegiance before Yahweh, and he connects those finding fulfillment in Philippians chapter 2 to the great day in which before King Jesus this will be the case, We simply believe that Jude believes that Jesus led Israel out of bondage. 
Jude's second reference to the angels leaving their position of authority is almost certainly a reference to Genesis chapter 6. And hopefully by just having this on the screen, it will help you break it down in your mind. This is where he's deriving these points. He doesn't, because of the familiarity of his listeners and his readers, he doesn't need to remind them as we do probably today. But this is where he's sort of grounding these. We read in Genesis chapter 6 of the sons of, sons of God. They saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. They bore children to them, and the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So just as God judged these angels, and it seems the point Jude is making here is for leaving their proper position of authority. So it's the authority breach that was made that he's contending against right now. That's kind of his point. There's so much going on with that. And there's, this raises a dozen questions probably in, in your minds right now. And we just can't go there. And Jude doesn't go there. So we'll stay on track with what he's trying to, the point he's trying to make. Just as God judged these angels for leaving their rightful post in the heavenlies, and he's keeping them in chains until the final judgment, God will judge similarly these intruders. That's his point. So finally now in verse 7, the reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. And see that it stands as an example, as an example of experiencing God's judgment on account of their indulging in prolific and flagrant sexual immorality and their pursuit of unnatural desire, which is the sin of homosexuality. In verses 8 through 10, we read, Yet in like manner, these people also, and by these people he means still the, those who've crept into the church, relying on their dreams, they defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they don't understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Now, by fabricating tales of prophetic-like dreams that, what do you know, justify whatever they wanted to do in the first place. So convenient. These intruders do things. Another one of Jude's triplets. They defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So the account of Michael, the archangel, contending with the devil over the body of Moses is bizarre. I'll just say it. It's strange. Having read that a couple times already this morning, You've got to be thinking, is that in the Bible? I don't remember that. Children, perhaps you're thinking, I don't think I've had that lesson from Mrs. Ranch yet. Or I don't think one of my teachers have taught me that lesson. And they probably won't. So I hope they don't. You'd be correct in that. Now, this is Jude's point here. According to a well-known theologian by the name of Tom Schreiner, who helps point to 
what's going on here. He says the intruders, which is those who crept into the church, insult demons. But the archangel Michael did not even presume to blaspheme the devil himself, but left his judgment to God. So the point is we have no authority in ourselves, only in the Lord. These blasphemers think that they possess authority. And of course, they think this because they've already outright denied the lordship of Christ. They are gods to themselves. The implication here, don't be like them. Do not recognize this for what it is. It is believed that Jude is quoting here from an apocryphal work that's called the Assumption of Moses. So... This must mean that that book, The Assumption of Moses, is canonical. And since it's not in our Bibles, we don't have all the scriptures in our Bibles. And so that must confirm our worst fears. The History Channel has been right all along. There is a one huge outright conspiracy going on to keep the true Christian faith and the true books of the Bible squelched and and those who had the most power won out thousands of years ago. And I didn't want to believe it, but I suppose it's true. Is that what we're to conclude? No. The word graphe, the Greek word for writing or Scripture, had become a shorthand way of referring to Holy Scripture in the New Testament. It appears 50 times, and this is noticeably absent. In this text, furthermore, just because Jude references something as an illustration does not mean that he wants his readers to take this full import of canonical status now and place it on what he quoted from. It would be very similar to if I were to make an illustration about Gandalf from the Lord of the Rings, as Brian would do routinely in his class over the past several months. And few hundred years from now, someone were to read this and to conclude that Brian Blazowski believes that J.R.R. Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings is inspired. That is not the point. We're familiar with this story, isn't it? It's fairly, you know, written in recent times and we understand the concept and he made the point, the illustration, but there was not this full import meant on canonical status to that, that reference. Very similar idea here. This is a story familiar to Jude's readers. He draws upon it to make his point, and he's done with it. Verse 10 says that these intruders blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are eventually destroyed by the very convictions that they, like brutish animals, have come to believe instinctively. Now see how the text talks here. These this, this is a profoundly provocative statement in our day and age. There are beliefs, beliefs that a person can hold, that they can come to naturally by instinct, that can damn them eternally. Let that rest on us. This is the motivation for why we seek to raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. This is why we have things like, like Kids Club and YWAP and VBS and other things to help to, to seek to impress scriptural truth deeply on the hearts of our children. My son Jude just turned six months yesterday. 
as much as I love him, as much as I pray that he comes to love the gospel, I must remember that what he understands instinctively is not righteousness. It is not godliness. Rather, as Scripture tells me, it is foolishness that is bound up within his heart. And unless God supernaturally opens his eyes to faith, he will be destroyed by the very beliefs that come naturally to him. We live in a day and age in which to speak against what comes natural to a person is, is on the same par as ripping away their very personhood and just, just telling them their whole identity is shattered. If you, you, you just can't question that. I had a feeling and it's mine. And you, you, you can't say that. That is the day in which we live. Jude says otherwise. This is yet another evidence of the ungodly. In verses 11 through 16, he continues to provide characteristics of the ungodly. He says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love fest, love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh of Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly in all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. I think he's got a point there of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. And like Cain, who had become the figurehead apparently in the Jewish mindset, this, this sort of representative figure for all sinners, and Balaam, who is here contemned, condemned for his greedy intentions, it would seem, and those who participated in Korah's rebellion, who were swallowed up by the earth, if you remember that story, so too these false teachers will experience God's wrath and His punishment. Verse 12 calls these false teachers who have crept into the church hidden reefs, or perhaps some of your translations say blemishes at your love feast. So what is a, what is a love feast well, this would be somewhat of a combination of what we think of as the Lord's Supper or communion together and, say, a potluck that we might have in the AP room. Not perfect illustration, but something of that, where it seems that, as best we can know, that there was just a formal stopping point in this meal they'd share together in which they'd consecrate uh, the bread and the wine and they would remember the Lord's death. So they are like hidden reefs at your love feast. They feast without fear, Jude says. They feast without fear. Their God is their belly, 
and the fear of God is not before their eyes, much less gratitude for the finished work of Christ. Here's a free meal. This is time to gorge myself, a whole lot of food. My mind, my heart is utterly disinterested in fellowship or remembrance of the Lord's death. And we see the description continue throughout these verses. You can see them on the screen in verses 11 through 16. They are clouds without rain. Now, you'll notice very normal images here and then the almost the perversion of that thing where it's, it's the distortion of it. It's not supposed to be that way. Almost a backwards play against the perversion of the grace of God that the, the false teachers have done. He's, he's turning it on them and showing they're the ones who are more or less perverse. They are clouds without rain. They are twice dead trees. Could be just an emphatic way of saying they're really, really, really dead. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up shame. Just impeccable imagery here in our minds. They're wandering stars. They are doomed by Enoch's prophecy for their ungodliness. We'll look at that in just a moment. Grumblers, fault finders, complainers, blamers is the idea of that word. They follow their own desires. They're again just doing what's instinctive. They're just following after their heart, you might say. They're loud-mouthed boasters. They show favoritism to flatter others. Jude's brother James condemns this sort of treatment, preferential treatment within the church. But they do this for their own good. Now, back to, for just a moment, Enoch's prophecy in verses 14 and 15. Here again we find a very challenging reference to the book of First Enoch, not found in the Bible, not found in the Apocrypha, not found in any Christian tradition, really, that holds to this as in their Bible. It's in something called the Pseudepigrapha, which is a collection of Jewish writings found a century, uh, these are from, rather, they're written in the century before, the century after Christ, roughly the, that 200-year period. And they claim to be written by the patriarchs. They claim to be written by someone who's certainly not alive at that time. Now, to give you an example or a framework of what might be happening, how this would have perceived, why something like this. Well, this was sort of a collection that a lot of them uh, had the effect of if I were to write a letter from Abraham Lincoln, I were to act like I was Abraham Lincoln today. And I was reflecting on the political landscape of our day. And I was bemoaning certain things. And what am I doing? I'm trying to leverage a trusted voice of the past and bring it to bear on the present predicament or situation or whatever might happen. You might have seen videos or something that follow the same idea. I saw one this week that that did that. It had Abraham Lincoln and he was talking about the political choices. And it It was doing that. It was trying to borrow a voice from the past, speak into the present. A lot of the pseudepigrapha does that. And it would have been understood. You and I, would, you're discerning listeners. You would understand. I'm not Abraham Lincoln. I didn't write. He didn't write that. You, You know that I did that. I was using a technique in order to push the point forward. This would have been the case largely and in many in many ways the point of these books. So what is Jude doing? He's referencing something that is well known. He's leveraging it 
to make his point, he's not importing canonical status that this must be the words of the Lord. Again, tricky, I I admit. So once again, he's simply illustrating his point by borrowing a quotation that conveys the destruction of the wicked. Now, take a deep breath. We made it through the hardest part of the book. The hardest portion is behind us. And as I mentioned before, allow me to, to stop you before you dump this in your doom and gloom box, before you put this in the this is too tricky to understand box. And let's just take a moment and reflect what would the Lord have us learn from the text we've looked at, these first 16 verses of the book of Jude. Well, first of all, Christian, let me ask you a very foundational question. Very foundational. How do you conceive of the Christian life? How do you think about the Christian life as a whole? Is life primarily about doing all that must-get-done stuff, you know, just work and even the good spiritual things that we do to just get it done so finally I can get to that portion of my day where it's comfort, entertainment, leisure, me time? Do you conceive of even the Christian life as as needing to fit into that mold? If you find yourself obeying Christ in some practical act of service, let's say within the church, and it hits you as you're carrying out this act of obedience, it all of a sudden hits you, this is really inconvenient. This is kind of sacrificing me, or, or I'm sacrificing a lot of time and effort and thought and I was supposed to just do this, and now it's turned into me calling eight dozen people and all this stuff, and this is just laborious. Your next thought is really important. Because either you'll conclude that I I should not be feeling this way. This is not what the Christian life is supposed to be. It's not hard. It's not a struggle. It shouldn't be frustrating. Obeying Jesus should be good. It should be happy. And so we conclude, I need to to not do that again. I need to come back. So, I recognize the danger of abusing this. I really do. So all the qualifiers in place. But if we have no category for the straining, the struggling, the fighting, the sacrificing, the contending, as Jude would say, that's involved in spiritual warfare, we may be evidencing that we don't have a full-orbed, correct understanding of the Christian life. Secondly, for what cause or causes are you contending? What do you struggle after? What do you fight for week after week and month after month? Perhaps you're contending for the dream once for all delivered to America, so to speak. Has the pursuit of the almighty dollar, an ever-expanding bank account, and the the he-who-dies-with-the-most-toys-wins mentality gotten to your heart more than you'd like to admit? Is comfort, toys, being perceived as someone who's well-off and established a continual pursuit of life? Perhaps you're contending for the God of sexual immorality, as Jude is clear on Jude might as well ask you, did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for no cause? They stand as a timeless example of God's righteous anger against such sin. 
Do you pervert the grace of our God into sensuality? Have you succumbed to the notion that since you're under grace, God is obligated to forgive you? And after all, you're, you're a Christian and that's God's job now. I don't think I'm overstating it when I say these are diabolical thoughts that will destroy the one who believes them. Repent and believe that the freedom and the license that you're striving for is actually a prison of your own making. One of my favorite hymns that we don't sing yet celebrates the irony of true freedom when it states, Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword and I shall conquer be. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms and strong shall be my hand. True freedom, the only true freedom, is found in being a servant of Jesus Christ. We could go on and on listing idol after idol that we could find ourselves contending for. And I'd encourage you to think about that. What do I find myself struggling for, intensely pursuing in my life? Does it bear the same weight and value as the Christian faith once for all delivered to the saints? Jude calls us to contend. A faith that must be proclaimed by the church that will shatter the very gates of hell. And lastly, do you see your fellow church members as fellow strugglers with you contending for the faith? Do you see them that way? Look around on any given Sunday or Wednesday or the next church-wide event. See these individuals around us, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who have each been called by God's Spirit, who are being kept by Jesus. And will one day, they could be right before you, they might be right after you, will be presented blameless before God. That's who they are. So as you observe them teaching your children, as you observe them serving on a hospitality team, or cleaning up a mess that someone else made, or seeking out visitors lovingly in the lobby after a service, or giving someone a ride to church, or offering accountability in the spiritual disciplines to a discouraged brother or sister, or meeting someone in the wee hours of the morning for spiritual encouragement over breakfast, or sacrificing their ability to hear a Sunday sermon that they desperately want in order to watch your child and to give you the gift of hearing God's word preached. These examples and countless more demonstrate what life in the trenches in the family of God looks like. Contending for the faith oftentimes looks like mundane, normal Christian living. Rather than seeking that one moment of valor in your Christian life that you hope you have one time in your life, it's probably going to look like these things we just mentioned. So over the course of the next week, I'd encourage you to meditate on the remainder of the book of Jude. Knowing that, if you found this text to be a tad on the discouraging, heavy side, it's a little lighter next week. Give you a heads up on that. His exhortation to persevere and the glorious promises of those kept by Jesus and ultimately presented blameless before God's presence 
Our hope is that we would love this book and it would become a joy to our hearts for God's honor and his glory and for for our good and our delight in him. Let's pray. Our Father, it is to this end that we pray. We cannot contend in ourselves, Lord. It is not in our own strength. We have no authority unlike these intruders, these false teachers. Our authority rests in you and you alone. We are your servants and we pray you'd find us faithful in being contenders for what matters most to your heart. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. Keep us true, Father. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.